We're going to go through a question real quick before we uh, jump into our series in Romans. Um, the question is, if heaven was on a curve, if getting into heaven or going to heaven was on a curve, that's what a curve looks like, you know, like three deviations, could be more. Um, and, you know, there's a cutoff point where you fail the class, right? So kind of think about it like, um, like a college class curve. So if getting to heaven was on a curve, would you make it? All right, so that's the first question. Would you be able to get in? And then secondly, why are you good enough uh, to get into heaven if, if that's what you come up with? Or why are you not good enough to get into heaven? And I just want us to spend like a few minutes talking with uh, the people around us. And hopefully if you are new and alone, someone will invite you into their discussion group and then to lunch. So that's, <laughs> yeah, please help. Okay, all right. So we're going to just do this for uh, a few minutes. Oh, groups of twos and threes. Check, check, check. All right, uh, we're back. Thanks for sharing. I got to go over my notes and work on my mic, so that's good. <clears throat> Let me pray for us as we, as we go into God's Word. Father, thank you so much for our time and... Uh, for everyone in this room, I pray that you would speak to us in a way that um, we can understand and um, allow that understanding to be a deep conviction beyond emotion, beyond uh, feeling yelled at um, or guilted, but that your truth, God, would settle into our hearts in a new way this morning. We love you, and we, have our, we just desire to um, see you more clearly and, um, yeah, to fall in love with your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, we have some open seats. Let's see, here, but I kind of took that up. There's some here. All right, uh, oh, right there. So if you have an open seat be next to you, just go ahead and scoot kind of towards the middle so we can open it up for other people. Um, how, many, how many people believe that they're going to heaven if if going to heaven was great on a curve, raise, raise your hand. Just don't be shy. Oh, wow, that's a really few. Okay, how many of you guys, you guys are bad people. Man, you didn't make the 50% mark? Jeez. All right, how many people felt, said, I'm not going to make it? Raise your hand. Oh, man. All right, I'm preaching to the wrong audience. Okay. Or the right audience. Okay, here we go. So, um... I think for, well, when I was in children's ministry, everyone thought they were going to make it. Because, you know, they're our, they're our best volunteers. They work with the kids. And, um, and I think if we were honest with ourselves, most of us feel like we're probably pretty good. Like, we're like pretty good people. And, um, and like, if it was graded on a curve um, and we weren't trying to be humble or throw me off this morning, we'd say maybe we'd make it, right? Maybe we'd make it to, into heaven. We haven't done any of, of the big sins, and we're probably better than most other people, you know, in general. And um, as we look at Romans, chapter 1 kind of starts off like this. At the end of chapter 1, which is where uh, Ken, Ken covered, Paul gives this kind of list of depravity, list of things that are evil, and the way he even spatially speaks about it, it's they. It's not us. It's not we. It's not you. It's they. 
They are the people who do all of these things. And he's really um, listing these really horrific things and having the, the Roman church, having the, the Christian Jews and Gentiles feel like they are on one side of the table, one side of the room, and then there's everyone else. They have be, become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, uh, dissent, and malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, um, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous degree, decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, um, but approve of those who practice them. That's the end of Romans chapter 1, which we covered last week. But I want you to notice the pronoun that Paul uses. He's speaking about all these other people. And it's so easy to point at others and say, man, they're worse than me. That I'm, I would break the 50% uh, first deviation of this bell curve and be okay and be able to make it into heaven. I'm pretty good. But Paul really kind of sets up his church as everyone is nodding when Paul's saying, like, these guys deserve anger and the wrath and judgment of God, as they're nodding and saying, yeah, like, some people deserve to be judged, right? ISIS deserves to be judged by God. Rapists deserve to be judged by God. Murderers deserve to be judged by God. People who kick puppies deserve to be judged by God, right? Like, we, we want the justice and wrath of God when it's on the other person when it's on him stopping someone else from doing evil. In fact, we get angry at God for not intervening in times where people who are innocent seem to be taken advantage of. And so the whole church is nodding with Paul as they see this grotesque list of sins and feel like God's righteous decree, them deserving death, uh, God's wrath um, is justly given to these people. But then Paul, what he does is he turns the table on the next slide. Oh man, my clicker was going, doing so well. And he systematically describes three categories of why you would feel like you're better than, than they. And, and each section of Romans chapter 2, if you look in your Bibles with me, uh, d tackles these reasons for why we're above the standard deviation, why we deserve to go to heaven, why we are different than them. Um, because I'm better than most people um, is the first kind of group of people he tackles. Then our righteousness can just come from arrogance or ignorance. I'm not really a Christian. I, I'm just living out my truth. Why would I be held accountable to God's truth or to your God's truth? And then the third group of people is the religious person. I'm better than others, or my righteousness comes from the fact that I came early on Sunday, I read the Bible this week, I'm a good Christian or a good Jew um, during that time. And um, so here, we're going to tackle each person, each, kind of, each one of these categories, and Paul systematically takes each of these reasons for our righteousness and he removes it. He debunks it. And, and I think this is kind of the 
best one out there. Like, I actually do feel better to most people. Like, do, do you guys feel that way? Like, uh, compared to the average human, like, you're not that bad, right? When you look at the news, at triple homicides and all these things, you're like, I'm pretty good. Like, I give my money to poor people. I've never punched Nina, you know, like, uh, not on purpose, right? And... Uh, <laughs> I, I wish we could film me and her sleeping next to each other because it'll be like, what the heck? Oh, what? I hit you. I'm sorry. And then my leg will fly across. So I thought I'd just push out of the bed. Uh, it's really violent. But I, I, I'm sleeping. So it's okay. <laughs> but con- when I'm conscious, I'm better than most people. And, um, and that's how the Jews and Gentiles reading this letter is feeling. I'm better than all of these people. I'm better than the they in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1. But then look at how Paul flips the script. Look at how he changes the pronoun for the rest of, of this chapter. He says, you. No one likes you. I like they. When we talk about God's judgment, when we talk about sin, I like they. I like the person next to me, the person across the row, the, my neighbor who sucks. The you, man, that's uncomfortable. But that's what Paul does. He says you, like me, Wilson, and you sitting in this room. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. How, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? So Paul's saying, if you think you're better than other people, which we all do uh, at some point, um, you are creating this moral standard right? And you're putting a point, a dot on the line, probably in the areas where you are best at. And you're saying, when this person sucks at this, they're not a good person. And what Paul is saying is that, but if I take the totality of your life and actions, you will have violated the the very morals that you've set up. At some point, for those of us who are big on keeping our word, we'll have failed a promise to someone we love. For those of us who are big on being faithful, um, we'll have lusted after another woman. For those of us who are big on disciplining our kid, one day we'll just be like, I'm too tired. I'm just going to go to sleep and have the bowl of candy. I don't care. Um, Whatever point that you say judgment should happen, Paul's saying you're going to pass that point. And you, in ascribing that point of judgment, will actually judge yourself. And, and then the second thing he says is that God's judgment is different. His judgment is just because he never crosses that point. He's the only one who has the right to judge because he doesn't violate uh, any of these laws. He doesn't violate any of the moral standard that he puts out. And in fact, the moral standard that we see comes out of his character, comes out of who he is. I've always wanted to have um, to talk to a cop when they pull me over for speeding and just ask, have you sped before? You know, like, <laughs> is, this, is it just me? You know, or, or talk to a judge about uh, something wrong and say, have you, have you done that? Have you ever missed a court date? Have you ever cheated on your taxes? And then we immediately see the hypocrisy. 
of other per, another man's judgment. They're keeping this civil law, which we need, but they themselves are, are vi- in violation of, of these laws. And if not in the category named, in some other category. And that's the same with us. Our righteousness, if we lean on it being because I'm better than this person, because I keep my word, because I don't lie, because I'm faithful, at some point, our righteousness will fail. And then the second category that Paul says is, he's like, what about those people who say, I'm not a Christian or Jew, I never had the law, I shouldn't be under God's judgment because I've, I'm, not, uh, I'm not conscientiously breaking the law that he's ascribed. I, I don't have access to that. And then Paul in verse 15 says, they, Gentiles who are non-Jews, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciousness also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. What Paul is saying is that you don't have to open scripture. You don't have to read the Ten Commandments to know that murder is wrong, to know that you shouldn't take another man's wife, to know that you shouldn't be worshiping yourself. Paul is saying he's, because we're all made in the image of God, and because of common grace, he's placed those things into our conscience. That as we are born, we feel and know at some baseline, things that are moral and amoral, and that we violate our conscience. That at some point of our lives, even at a really young age, we know what's right, and we do what's wrong. So Paul's saying, hey, if you want your righteousness to reside on just your conscience, on what you know to be good outside of Scripture, your, your righteousness still wouldn't hold up. Because you've done things in your life that you knew were, was wrong. I've done things in my life that I knew was wrong. This is a really gross example that I just thought of that I shouldn't share. But I remember as a child, laying, laying falling asleep, and like picking my nose and eating my booger. I don't know if you know. No, none of you relate to that. And in my heart of hearts, I was like, this is wrong. My mom that would not like this. But I did it anyways. I was, like, I was young. I was like 18, right? And, um, and it just got worse, right? I, I, there were things that I saw. There were things that I did. There were things that I said to another person that I knew would be hurtful, that I knew I shouldn't see, that I knew I shouldn't do. And so our accusation of, of God unjustly judging us because we don't know Scripture, Paul says, is wrong because he gave us enough in our heart to know that we've sinned against him, to know that we've chosen evil, that our conscience bears witness against us, sometimes accusing, sometimes defending. And lastly, I'm a spiritual and righteous person. Like, that should be the basis for my righteousness, right? My, I'm a PK. We have a whole collection of PKs in this room. We have a collection of pastors, too. I want bobbleheads uh, for, for our PK and pastor collection. Uh, we have a lot of really spiritual people who know the Bible well, who have master's degrees, who are, you know, quote-unquote good Christians. And this is what Paul says about us. Right? If you have your Bibles, you can uh, look in there because this is a really small font. Um, 
But it says, now if you call yourself a Jew or you call yourself a, a great Christian, a reformed, uh, ESV, Biola-going Christian, listening to John Piper, right? If you call yourself that, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you were instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you not dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul here is pointing out the hypocrisy of the religious. And I would say out of all the categories, I relate to this the most. In fact, as I was reading it, I actually felt still righteous in some ways. I'm like, no, I haven't committed adultery. You know, like when he's asking these rhetorical questions, I have not robbed the temple, you know, for sure. I don't even know where one is exactly. I'm sure I could yelp it. I haven't stolen, although I am on some websites that rip off, you know, movies and stuff. But that doesn't count, right? It's not a tangible item or whatever justification I have. Um, I can think of five more, just ask. Um, um, do I dishonor God by breaking the law? Okay, sometimes. But, you, you know, seriously, on first reading, I just kind of felt like I didn't want to see myself in this. Like, this still wasn't me. I think sometimes that's when we have to dig a little deeper. And what Paul says here and is that for the Jewish person, being a real Jew isn't a circumcision of the physical, um, but it's inward. It's of the heart. And then in verse 16, it says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Christ Jesus, as my gospel declares. I think this concept of God judging our secrets, meaning that he doesn't just judge our actions. He doesn't just judge me preaching the sermon this morning or us playing, uh, doing a dance for the special needs kid, people or paying for laundry at a laundromat for people who can't afford it. He doesn't just judge it on our actions. That everyone would agree are good is good. He goes deeper. And he says, but why are you doing it? And for who are you doing it? And what is really going on on your heart? I can tell you that mixed into my, my desire to have you hear the word of God this morning, to have you see his righteousness beyond yours, is my desire for a good turnout, is my desire for like a sermon that would satisfy people's critiques of me is a desire to look good and to build my reputation, right? So like when we dig deep enough at why we do even the good things, why we put it on social media, why we want other people to see it, that there's still things about our heart that are evil. 
when we say don't commit adultery to someone else, when we yell at them, when we point our finger, when we judge someone who walks into a room because they cheated on someone else, Paul's saying, look at your own heart. How many times have you looked at another woman lustfully? When we say you shouldn't worship another idol, Paul says, look at your own heart. How many times have you worshipped yourself or money or fame? When, Paul's, when we tell someone else, do not steal, how often have we envied at what someone else has? So if our righteousness leans on like being religious, if our righteousness leans on doing the good, he's saying that God's bar is way beyond that. He digs into the secret motivations of our heart, and it will always come up tainted. Even if there's good, there's still going to be selfishness in there. And I think selfishness is how he defines what is righteous. He says, for those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Dang, I kind of want that as a tattoo. Um, But for those who are self-seeking, who reject truth, who follow evil, theirs will be wrath and anger. I think the self-seeking part punches me in the face. Because how do you weed that out of your best moments, parenting a child? How do you weed that out of falling in love with a girl? How do you weed that out of feeding someone who's homeless? Being self-seeking will always be a part of us. And if we're from another religious system, and I'm doing good as a Buddhist so that I get reincarnated into a wealthier man, isn't the core of that self-seeking? If, if, I'm, a, if I'm of another religion and doing good means that I get to go to heaven, isn't the core of why I do good self-seeking? And God's like, righteousness means you're not seeking yourself. My righteousness means that it's not about you, but about my glory. If you want to measure up to God's righteousness, it's about seeking his glory, that everything you do is about worshiping him. It's about seeking his honor, having your eyes fully focused on him so that he would give you favor and that he would say, well done, good and, for, perfect, uh, good and faithful servant. It's about immortality, meaning that your joy and life will forever be in the presence of God. That's what you're really seeking. And I think all of our righteousness falls short of that. Let me end with uh, two parts in Luke where Jesus addresses these two things. Um, he talks about a rich man who who I think represents the American dream, you know, make America great again, right? And I think it could actually represent our dream, who we are, even as Christians. He thought to himself, there was a certain rich man that yielded abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, and I want you to notice all of the personal pronouns. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
And isn't this like the sum of most of our lives? I want to get rich enough to retire, right? End of story. <laughs> like, that's my life goal. I want to live by the beach at Corona Del Mar and play volleyball every single day. Every single day. And then what does God say? You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be for everyone who stores up things for themselves and is not rich towards God. There's 12, uh, not 10, there's actually 12, and you know, it's kind of like those puzzles where I can't count that far. But I think there's 12 personal pronouns where basically his whole life is wrapped around his desires, his accomplishments, his future. And, and what evil looks like compared to righteousness in the eyes of God is self-centeredness as opposed to God-centeredness. And I don't think we see evil as that. We see it as societal damage. We see it as hurting someone. We see it as um, doing evil. But God sees it as life being about you. When he created us, he said, I'm gonna, if God's real, right? If you can get there, if God is real, he gets to purpose what we do and what we're about. And our purpose is to worship him. Our purpose is to give him glory. Our purpose is to be in a loving relationship with him. And when we're not fulfilling that purpose, when we deviate from it and say that life is about me, that's, that's what sin is. And all of us are caught up in that. Whether we're doing things that are explicitly evil or whether we're at the top of, our, you know, we fulfilled every Asian parent's dream and became a doctor, right? Um, that can be evil too because it could be all about us. If, we're, if we fulfill our parents' dream and we become the best father in the world and we raise a great son, that can still be about us. It, we can still fall into this category of 12 personal pronouns and our life wrapped around it. Um, but the danger is that in this man and, and us who see those things as not evil, we can show contempt to the richness to his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance. But because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay every person according to what he has done. You see, the most dangerous part about our self-righteousness when we don't, when we don't, oh, that door, um, interesting choice. Um, uh, when we don't see these good, religious, naive things as truly evil, is we don't come to God in repentance because we think we're good enough. We don't come to him like a sinner would because we're okay. We've gone to church enough times. We're better that we're at the third deviation, standard deviation, right, of, of human morality. And this is, this is the way Paul's setting up all of his listeners. He's saying, you also need Jesus, all of us. From the worst of us that we point fingers at and we condemn. And then he, but he says, to the best of us, the best of us, 
the three point fingers pointing back at the righteous, at the pastor's kids, at the churchgoers, at the um, wealthy and successful businessmen, lawyers, doctors, educated people. He's saying all of us need the gospel. But some of us recognize that. You know, there's this last story in Luke 19 where a Pharisee who is like, you know, the best of the best of the best religious people. They keep everything, every law flawlessly. He walks up to the temple to pray right next to a tax collector. And the Pharisee says, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not an evildoer, right? I'm not a robber. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector next to me. And I'm like, dude, he can hear you. Like, you're not that far away. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And I wonder if some of us have come to church like that, or kind of like that, or a little bit like that. Where we, we're here and we're like, you know, I'm, I'm good. Like, at least I'm good enough. I don't really need forgiveness. I'm not desperate for the Lord. I'm not a big sinner. But then there's this other man, there's this tax collector who back in the day was like a thug, a gangster. They were a traitor to their own people. He walks to the temple too. He doesn't feel good enough to stand close. So he stands at a distance and he starts beating his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he prays. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, one of these guys are justified before God, and the other one, he is not. As we come to church this morning, as we come before our, our Savior, are we coming hungry and thirsty? Are we coming broken? Are we coming a sinner? Because Jesus says, then I will fill you. Then you will be righteous. Then you will be healed. Then you will be forgiven. If we come good enough, if we come religious enough, if we come righteous enough, then we don't need grace. Need precedes grace. Do you need Jesus this morning? And I hope that Paul would pick apart my righteousness and bring me to my knees so that I would say, yes, Jesus, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, we come to you th this morning and we come to the communion table where we say, all of us come to you as equals. Some people in this room come uh, cheating and stealing and gambling, and others of us come to you with, with our righteousness that is all about us. And, and to this morning, I hope that all of us would see that we need you. We need you. We need your mercy. We are sinners. 
And I pray especially for the, the kids here that have gone through Sunday school, that have heard this sermon, that are good Christians. I pray for us, God. And I ask, Lord, that you would show us the places in our life that the gospel has not penetrated. You would show us the evil in our righteousness, the evil in our spirituality that says, I don't really need to repent. I'm actually good enough. That points to the other instead of pounds on our chests, instead of being on our knees. I pray for us, God. Forgive us. Forgive us for not needing you this week. Forgive us for putting parts of our lives and saying, oh, this is okay. This part's righteous. I don't really need to examine my heart. I can just use these Christian slogans. Forgive us, God, because we haven't been on our knees for a long time. We haven't wept over our sin and our self-centeredness and our pretend righteousness. Forgive us and convict our hearts. I think that's who Paul is talking to. I think he's talking to me. I think he's talking to the church kid, the PKs. Can we just take a minute to come before Jesus? And I hope that at some point the Spirit would allow you to really, from the depths of your soul, come before his throne and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner that you would come before the communion table as we think about Jesus forgiving us, shedding his blood on the cross, giving up his body, dying for us, and that we would know that even though we grew up in suburbia and we never, like, punched anyone, that we need the execution of Jesus as much as anyone else, that we deserve death because our life is wrapped around us. I just pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would bring us all to a place of repentance and desperation for you. And that you would bring us all to the saving work of Jesus on the cross. And that as we approach it, it would be humbling, it would be desperate, that we would need it, we would be hungry for it.